0: Alex Wheatle, welcome to Tell a Friend. Yeah, I'm very uh, happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So to begin our interview, I was wondering if you could talk to my viewers a bit about your early life and uh, talking about the social and political climate at the time.
1: Right, uh, my early life. Um, I guess you were asking me about my childhood, uh, which was um, spent... Um, mostly in care in a a brutal children's home uh, called Shirley Oaks. I was there from two and a half to around about 15 years of age where I suffered um, uh, physical abuse, uh, mental abuse and all kinds of things you can imagine. And so that left me uh, with a very low esteem. Um, It left me uh, isolated, alone at that point in my life. I wasn't aware or didn't know of any family. And so really, I was at the bottom rung or even below the bottom rung of the ladder. And then I went to Brixton in my, in my late teens and I found um, an identity, if you like, amongst the, um, the blacks who lived there. So I felt um, for the first time in my life that I belonged to something. But of course, Brixton was very uh, tumultuous in the late 70s. Early eighties, there was lots of police persecution, and in a way that um, politicised me because I saw at first hand the, the police brutality, the, um, the intimidation, and so forth. And so um, that really made me uh, wake up to the idea that um, because of my colour of my skin, because of the colour of my skin, I wasn't quite accepted, even though I was born in Britain. And so that. Um, it all resulted in what happened in April 1981, the Brixton Uprising. But as I say to many people, the, um, it, didn't this happen over two or three days in April 1981? You have to go back to the likes of um, Olive Morris, who was uh, assaulted, badly beaten up by the police. And uh, this is way back in 1969. So it was always under the surface. Of what was going on in Brixton, the police intimidation, but obviously it boiled over on that um, warm weekend it was in April, and um, it resulted in me serving time in prison, a few months, and then again, there again, uh, I found myself um, educating myself through reading. Uh, my cellmate, he was an avid reader, and he handed me a copy of C. L. R. James' *The Black Jacobins*, and for the first time in my life. I read the texts of a black superhero, if you like, in Toussaint Sam Because uh, usually, when I um, access popular culture for any kind of black heroes that were out there, I couldn't really find any. Maybe only on the sports field, but never in a military uh, aspect or, or some kind of hero. You know, like um, uh, the British—they had their Nelson, their Wellington, and so forth. And who can I look? Who can I look to? And so really in prison that started the uh, re-education of me, if you like. And um, I wanted to um, basically, when I came out, express my own kind of narrative and a narrative of that of the people who I grew up with. And so that is when I started my um, lyrics. I used to write lyrics for sound system performances and chants and uh, songs and so forth. Um, my big hero at the time was Linton, Linton Quazy Johnson. He was an established dog poet and he was the only one who I could see who um, actually related my existence. And so he was like a a role model for me. It's something that I like to model myself on. And so my poetry was about my lived experience in care on the streets of Brickson and feeling alone, feeling um, basically in solitary confinement. I felt many, many times because I still wasn't in touch with my family. I didn't know my mother, my father. I didn't know if I had any brothers or sisters. And so I just wanted to express that. And I think um, it was a very healthy thing for me to do instead of all the things bubbling up inside of me where I couldn't release them. uh, Poetry and short stories and my little essays. And I used to keep a journal. That kept me sane. And so I kept with that and that began to give me confidence. And with that confidence, you can achieve many things. So, so I trained in um, engineering. I found myself a trade and so on. But I kept on with the creative work. And that resulted in 1999 with a publication of my first novel, Bricks and Rock. So um, I'm celebrating 21 years now as a published author. It's some, it's, it still feels um, unreal at times. And I think, wow, you know, I was this little kid, just trying to find some kind of um, belonging. Uh, you know, just trying to find some kind of meaning to life, if you like, wondering why I was born many of the times. And here I find myself, um, 2020. Um, I've just released my 14th book, Cain Warriors. So it seems an amazing tale.
0: So you spoke there about the influences of early activists such as Olive Morris, who was uh, very active in Brixton. Yeah. So would you say that, In, uh, during the 1981 uh, uprisings, uh, you and your fellow peers who took to the streets, would you say you were building on that pre-existing black British history of uh, direct action? I believe so. Yes,
1: very much so. Because um, I used to hear tales from my parents' generation that um, you have to show the other cheek, you have to um, um, not respond in a physical way, but, I think, with the, uh, the stories of Olive Morris and the like, and Brixton was a very political place. You had people like Dark as Hal there, and he um, initiated a newspaper. I cannot remember the title of that newspaper. Oh, right. uh, Brixton was like, a, it was like a hub of black thinkers and black creative thinking as well, led by people like C.L.R. James, who uh, actually uh, was resident in Routon Road for quite a long time. I, I wasn't aware of that when I was living there. And also, uh, we cannot dismiss the influence of reggae music. When you, when we would, when we would um, visit the record shops, the reggae record shops, sometimes you would see in the shop windows uh, a black hand clutching barbed wire, and this is where my education grew as well, because this is where I learned about what was happening in Zimbabwe and Angola and South Africa. I didn't hear it in school, you know. Um, Brixton was the first time I heard Nelson Mandela's name. And so I was made politically aware of what is going on in the black diaspora because of reggae and because of those album colors. And I think that politicized us in a, in, to such an extent that we decided, you know what, we're not going to take any more um, any more oppression from the, um, the police because they would hound us daily, they called us um, derogative names daily, They'd frame us, they would laugh at us, they would call us insulting, you know, uh, racist terms and so on. And um, it came to a point that uh, many of us decided no more.
0: And could you talk to me about some of the artists, some of the reggae artists that you were uh, listening to at that time?
1: Of course, yeah. Um, I guess my favourite artists included people like Dennis Brown, the Crown Prince of Reggae, Gregory Isaacs, Sugar Miner, The Wailing Souls, Barrington Levy, Johnny Osborne. There were so many. For me, it was a golden age of reggae. And of course, Bob Marley as well. You know, we listened to him. Constantly, constantly. I mean, everywhere you went in Brixton, you heard reggae music. No matter what street you walked down. We had a a number of record shops in central Brixton. And of course, there were the blues parties, the dances, the town hall um, clashes with the sound systems. And it was all like a sub kind of culture going on. And I just lapped it up because... It wasn't, um, I didn't grow up with that kind of culture around me. And now I was right in the middle of it. I just absorbed everything I could. And I used to um, spend many nights um, just reading the, um, the back covers of reggae albums and seeing, um, you know, reading the lyrics, reading who were the, um, the musicians and so on, and then the studio engineers. I was, I was, I really became a geek, if you like. And so, I mean, Bernie Spear, I would analyze his songs and music for hours on end because that's how much I was invested into um, this regular movement, if you like. And I wasn't the only one, there are others as well. I mean, everybody seemed to be a member of a sound system. And sound systems would basically travel around, they'd play at parties, youth clubs, community centers. And it really was like a sense that um, at last I belonged to something, I belonged to a culture. And so um, I enjoyed that, even though there was obviously the police interrupting that at many times, but at least I found some place where I did belong.
0: And could you talk to me about the first time you uh, had an encounter with the police and uh, faced that hostility?
1: The first time, I was probably, um, I think the first time I was queuing up to gain entry into um, a club. I think it was on Streatham High Road, the club was called Ballyhigh. It was very um, well known at the time, because in Bally High you had to put on your nice clothes. You couldn't enter the club with a t-shirt and a jacket. It had to be a shirt, proper of trousers, shoes, and so it was a Sunday night uh, kind of experience and I was queuing up there and the police were patrolling and they basically asked to search me. And, and I was with a girl, a, 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 not say a girlfriend, but this a girl who I knew who I was trying to impress basically. You know, so um, it was very humiliating when they uh, searched me, they had me on the ground, they almost pulled my trousers down. They roughed up my clothes. They roughed up my hair. They said that the apple comb that I was um, that I had in my back pocket was an offensive weapon. They called me derogatory names. So you can imagine the humiliation, chewing up, you know, to gain entry into this club with everybody watching. And in the end, the police just took it for a joke. They just laughed as I said, "Go on, go on your way." I felt utterly. You know, a What you know? What can you do? So that was my first, my first proper encounter when I basically knew that um, the police there they were,
0: they were the enemy. By the time uh, of the eighty-one uprisings, would you say that it was an explosion of frustrations that had been building up over the years? absolutely yeah it was an explosion
1: and also because of the climate and the, uh, the circumstances and and the, uh, the the culture of fear and mistrust um there was a rumor there was a rumor that the police had actually stabbed somebody on Routon road and even though it didn't turn out to be true because of the um, atmosphere at the time everyone believed it and that's when people started to say no more they they're, they're killing us now in open daylight in broad daylight and so that's why on the saturday the stabbing happened on a friday apparently but um, later we found we discovered that it wasn't the police who inflicted this injury on this on this young guy but everyone believed it because of our bad relations with the police at the time and so that went around Brixton like wildfire on the Friday night. I think that was the 9th or the 10th of April. And on a Saturday, uh, Brixton was full like i have never seen before. All the barbershops, the record shops, the street corners, they were just brimming with people, just expecting something to kick off. And the police obliged. They really did. I mean, you think they might have... Um, you know, had been under some kind of a strait, but no, they just, um, they arrested uh, one cab driver, I think it was, and they battered his head on the um, the bonnet of his own car. And somebody said, you know, what are you doing? And um, it all started from there, and uh, everyone tried to free the man who the police tried to arrest, and it, it just kicked off big time, as you say, an
0: explosion. And when you were taken to the streets at that time, what was going on through your head? Like, did you, Uh, Could you comprehend the historical significance of what was taking place right before your eyes?
1: I couldn't really comprehend the historical significance. I guess what, I just felt a charge through my body of exhilaration, fear, because no doubt I knew what would happen if I was caught and I was... um, taken away and, you know, and uh, put in a police cell, I knew what was coming, but at the same time, there was a sense of, okay, you're running away from us now. It's uh, it's time for us to take, to reach our revenge. So there was part of that, that charge for me too. And so there's lots of conflicting emotions, fear, excitement. Um, and at the end of the day, I, when I look back now, I think, well, if we did not stand up, what, would history uh, be recorded now? What would happen? Will it please continue to treat us so badly? You know, so um, I think it was a good thing that we
0: did stand up. And when you, when you look at Britain today and you see that we're still facing the same issues of uh, the yeah. and the uh, same issues with race relations, does it feel to you like it was all in vain? Because it feels like we haven't moved that far. Yeah,
1: we, I believe we haven't moved far enough. I mean, it's so frustrating at times when we see uh, that black people, especially young black men are um, going to be searched or stopped uh, six, seven, eight times. I cannot remember the latest figure more than their white counterparts. And also um, with lack of trust as well, it's still here in our community. And for me, it should never be a them and us um, situation where they're the enemy and we're seen as the enemy, you know, by them. And it, it really, the police, obviously we need police to um, police communities, but you have to do that with the lives of the people who you going to police. And so we haven't reached that stage yet where that trust level hasn't matched up. So, um, yes, yeah, so I am deeply frustrated because you know i'm in my 50s now I, I really don't want to be talk about how it's going to be for your generation or my children's generation or indeed my grandchildren's generation when i have any you know i don't want us to be fighting this fight all the time and it seems like we've been obliged to because um change is very very slow within the police force and even within society i mean what just the other day we had um over 20,000 uh, complaints about the performance by diversity on ITV. And for me, it was, a, it was a wonderful thing to see, a wonderful thing to experience that young people are taking control of their own narrative and they wanted to express how they felt about 2020. And that included what happened to George Floyd. That includes COVID. And for me to see 20,000 people, maybe more, complain about that it's like they're trying to deny us a voice but so for me that's very disappointing and that all chimes in with how um, you know because the police is only reflection of society uh, you, you cannot just say that oh there's elements of the police racist and that's it obviously there's elements of society racist
0: as well and that is what we have to confront and it's what we have to try and wean out and as you mentioned earlier, when you were uh, sentenced and you were serving your sentence, that's when you were being exposed to a lot of these books and that's when your own um, writing and black education was kind of growing even more. How would you say you found your voice in such a time of solitude?
1: Um, well, my cellmate is a Russian man called Simeon. He gave me so much confidence because Almost every night I would complain to him about my own existence, uh, my own tribulation, growing up in care. And um, I would always harp on and carp on about what happened to me. And he would say to me, yes, that is true, but um, that doesn't mean that you're ignorant. It doesn't mean that you cannot educate yourself now. It doesn't mean that you haven't got anything to contribute to society. It doesn't mean that you cannot become a great man. Who knows what you could become? You know, look forward, look within and see where your talent is and he would drum this into me drum this into me and so when i um, uh, revealed to him that i wanted to be um, a reggae artist or whatever you know writing lyrics and songs and poetry and and so on he said go on here's the pencil here's the paper don't be afraid to fail at first you know you have to start somewhere you know the first step so he taught me all these uh, life skills which was incredible for me. I never had that from any uh, social worker, from any person or guardian that I've ever um, met in my life. He became that kind of like father figure, that that guidance tool that I so much needed. And when I think about young people now, I think you know that member of the community is so hard to find now. That person who can just cajole and disinfluence uh, young people in the right way, where. I was influenced because maybe if I didn't um, meet Simeon, who knows what might have come in my life. Maybe the talent that I had within me would never have been discovered. And sometimes that is the journey of our life, isn't it? To try and find what we excel at. And um, fortunately, I found something that I enjoyed, something that I excelled at. And even in the children's home, and I was I was telling him that um, I spent most of my time reading comics and magazines, writing my own little uh, uh, cricket songs or football songs, trying to make cartoon characters. And I guess growing up as a kid, you kind of dismiss that you think, oh, that's just a hobby or something that fulfilled, or filled the timing, if you like, as an escape to what was happening around me. But really, for me, like, it was developing a talent that I would later use. And so he encouraged me to go back to that Alex Wheatle when I was eight, nine, 10, and just be creative, do what I like, do what the world likes that. And so that's what I've been doing since I started writing.
0: And if you look at a lot of your books, I'll list them here, Brixton Rock, East of Acre Lane, Island Songs, a lot of them are based on your personal experience and your story. Yeah. And I was wondering, when you're writing these books, is it ever difficult for you to write something that is so, so close to your own personal story?
1: Um, not really, because writing is a form of therapy for me. I think I mentioned before that it helped me address and confront the issues that I had growing up as a child, as a lonely child. And so me um, kind of um, processing this, um, lived history, and putting it on the page is a kind of relief for me. For years, Brian, especially in my 20s, um, my, my childhood was something that I was very loath to discuss. I felt ashamed, I felt a bit awkward, I felt a bit uncomfortable. But the more I expressed it on the written page, the more comfortable I became of it because, I thought, what is this me. And, you know, I set me because for many years, I didn't want to know the the child me or the teenage me. It was too embarrassing, too awkward, too impossible for me to confront. But now it was on the page and it's out there. It's like a, a paper airplane just flying around and it landed softly. And I thought, yeah you know i'm proud of who i am i'm proud of um, what i've accomplished i'm proud of um, that i've made something out of myself from a very desperate start and so as i said to you before writing is a form of therapy for me that always will be even if no one publishes me i'll probably still write just for my own satisfaction my own kind of um, journey in life as it were
0: to uh, deal with with demons that we all have inside of us now as a creative where do you stand on the debate around politics and art. Do you, do you think that it is the responsibility of creatives to use that art uh, politically? Or do you believe that um, you can have people who write books, make music that don't have anything to do with what's going on in the current?
1: It's a good question, Brian, but for me, it comes down to a choice. I, I choose, uh, not in every single book that I write, or every single or essay or article or poem, but I choose to uh, be political when I want to be, and that is fine. And also, it's fine for those creatives who decide to write a piece of work that maybe not be termed political. That is fine, also. I mean, um, sometimes I think to myself. Uh, commentators don't actually ask so many white creatives uh, that they might consider being political in their work. You know, sometimes they can just be considered as an entertainer and that's it. You know, just entertain the masses. You can create your art for the masses and that's it. We don't have to ask any more questions about it and I think we should um, at least be given that choice too. But me, me personally, personally, um, I'm a political animal. And so every now and again i'm going to come out with something that um, hopefully is going to make you think about um, the issues that black people face the experiences that black people have lived and so forth or even poor people for that matter because i'm not just black and white i'm also uh, politically aware about poverty class and all the rest of that and so um, in all my books i I try to uh, hint at those kind of um, issues if you like like even in my um, Cronkton books, I hint at those kind of, uh, like in Homegirl, where it's poverty and that's a driving force. Or in Cronkton Knights, it's a gang warfare that's a driving force. And I feel I have something to say about that and so on. Like uh, my present book, Cane Warriors, obviously I'm writing about history that I think should have been covered many, many times before, but it was allowed to. Um, you know, slave revolts in Jamaica, they're not really written about at length. And it's something that um, I feel we need to address because it wasn't just about um, William Wilberforce uh, going up in Parliament and saying abolish slavery. People, many people, don't realise or are aware that um, the slave masters were given something like twenty million pounds in 1833, which um, I don't know. I'm not a mathematician, but today that would be something in a billion. So obviously, they had an incentive to abolish slavery, but. For me, the driving force to stop slavery was the slavery revolts because if they didn't occur, they would have kept on reaping their awards. Um, the insurrections, they stopped that flow. They really did. So I think we need to um, tell more of those stories, You know, where we capture the narrative rather than they tell the narrative for us.
0: Now, let me bring it forward to 2008 when you were given your mm-hmm. MP. When you when you got that phone call or when you got that letter, what what was your reaction?
1: Um, at first, I thought it was a summons from the police. <laughs> it was a it was a long envelope, a very long envelope. I thought, oh my God, what have I done now? But I opened it, and I have to admit, there was a big debate, a big debate with my family and friends. Should I accept this? Because um, obviously, I know Benjamin Zephaniah; he refused it, and others have refused it as well. I mean, the empire, is it really still there? Is it really a thing? And um, so I thought about it you know, heavily for the next week, two weeks or so on. And then I finally concluded that somebody out there, I don't know who, has recognised that I've done something good. I've done something good. And it doesn't really matter whether they give MBEs or knighthoods to anybody else who perhaps don't deserve them or whatever. I don't know. But they recognised that i have done something good. You know, in my, in my career, I've um, facilitated workshops in prisons, mental health institutions, schools, all kinds of different places. And the award was just as much for that work as it is for my writing. And so I thought, you know what, um, somebody's recognised I've done something good, and I believe I have too. And they decided to give me this MBE. So I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept it because of the work I have done. So, yeah, I accepted it. As I said, I did have sleepless nights about it, how I would be perceived by, by my black community and so on. But I decided it's not going to change my outlook on what I'm going to write about. I'm going to be as political as ever, even maybe more so, <laughs> because I think once you gain success, you're given that freedom, aren't you? We well, can be more expansive. You can be, you know, I can address the issues I really want to address, because uh, I won't have an editor saying, oh, Alex, you should not write about this. I'm not sure of it Sell, You know, now I'm quite an established author, so now I can write about what I please. So, uh, I'm in an even more powerful position now. And so, if anything, it's enhanced my creativity, if you like, and to feel total freedom in writing about whatever subject I choose. Now, uh-
0: Building on that, I wanted to ask you, when you're uh, writing your books, do you ever have uh, that conflict between publishers who may have a financial incentive versus your own creative uh, vision for what you're writing? Do you ever have Mm -hmm. that back and forth? No, not really. That's not really happened to me. I've always
1: written exactly what I wanted to write about. With Bricks and Rock, I wanted to write about a character who's beating the care system who is um, he, he's, he's, he's come to Brixton for the first time and he's trying to find his identity and he's also trying to find his family. You know, so um, that was me expressing something within me and uh, the, the friends who I grew up with. And so I never saw any hindrance in that or any kind of um, way that the editor was saying, I must tone this down or tone that down. Um, Isabe claim, my follow up, that was about precisely what happened in 1981. And I felt totally free to write about that. Um, All the issues, I mean, um, the front line, what happened there, uh, dealers on the streets, reggae dances, blues dances, the whole of it. I just put it all in there without no fear. Of um, somebody uh, saying that I cannot do this, it might not be popular or, or whatever. I just wanted to write this story, I wanted to read. And I think that's the, um, the best thing a writer can approach any kind of form of work. I mean, if I tried to write like Zadie Smith, White Teeth, I would fail. I, I cannot write that. You know, it's not me, it's, I, I cannot be passionate about that kind of narrative. The narrative that I'm going to be passionate about is something that I have lived, something that is close to me, something that's close to my heart, that's affected me and the friends who I know.
0: And so I'm always going to stick to that. Now, in recent days, it was announced that uh, Steve McQueen uh, will has made a film uh, about your life and it will be part of his uh, yeah. five-film anthology called Small Acts.
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: And can you yeah. talk to me again about you know, when did you first hear that they were making this film about your life?
1: Well, um, four, four or five years ago, I was part of the um, Steve McQueen writers room that were developing this series. It's been in development for a long, long time. And me and Courtney Ludon and others were in this writing room. Uh, it was like a nine to five job for three or four months where we didn't um, hit out on, you know, ideas of how we could uh, write this series. And Steve wanted, he wanted a story about a young black male who's been through institutions, is maybe spent some time in a children's home or a ball stall, or maybe spent some time in prison. He he really wanted to tell that story because that's been so um, missing in action on major television outlets over the years and um, one of my fellow writers, Alistair uh, Siddons, a very good friend of mine, he knew about my narrative and he said, Alex, we have to, we have to do your story. Your story is amazing. And so Steve said, what, what? And so um, I spent the rest of the day relating to my tale. And Steve was nodding, oh, yes, we've we got to do this, we've got to do this. So. Um, Here it is. And, you know, obviously um, when you're in development, you cannot speak openly about um, the project that you're working on and so on. You know, that's both things. But I'm so relieved that now I can speak about it and address it. And um, it's it's, it's amazing. I mean, can you imagine it? One of the best directors in the world. I mean, there could not be a better director in the world to direct my story. I mean, is very humbling very very humbling and i went on set i saw the um the drama being made and and so forth and it's just an overwhelming feeling it really is especially when they recreated the um the hostel room that i was in in brixton the the flyers the poses i used to have my reggae collection They they had everything on point it was just an amazing experience and um just to um, finish off um i've just seen the um the uh, reviews of um lovers rock the culture newland um episode that uh, he wrote with uh, steve mcqueen it's been amazing and so viewers are really in for a treat i mean you know uh the master edit the master um, director steve mcqueen Every single episode is going to be incredible. It's going to be a, um, a, a breakthrough kind of breakthrough t- television. It really is. And um, I, I implore everyone to watch it. Every episode, the Louis Logan one, the Lovers Rock one, the Mangrove one. We worked very hard on them. And now it's time to deliver and we're, we're very excited.
0: And when it comes to actually watching your show, are you going to watch it with everyone else or is that going to be too weird an experience for you?
1: Um That's a very good question. Uh, my family asked me this a lot, what, what am I going to do? Um, because oh, I was, I don't know, because I'm quite emotional. I might just I might cry buckets. <laughs> so um, I, I haven't decided yet, to be honest Brian. I've not decided yet. Um, I understand it's going to be broadcast around about November. So I would have to make a decision you know, where am I going to watch this? Um, do I watch it with family, do I watch it on my own first? I don't know. It's I know I'm going to cry <laughs> because, you know, there's elements of my life story that um, are very tender, very traumatic, very emotional. So um, I have to be careful, but um, hopefully it might inspire somebody out there.
0: Now, before we conclude, I wanted to finish as I always do with a quick fire round of questions. Mm-hmm. So I invite you to complete the sentence. Okay. And the first one is, the greatest misconception about me is? Uh, I don't laugh. <laughs> Second one, my biggest regret is?
1: Not um, taking on extra English when I was um, 15.
0: I am most proud of. Most proud of um, raising a family. And finally, I want people to remember me for.
1: Being a good guy, you try to do the right thing. I mean, it's
0: as simple as that really. Alex Wheatle, thank you so much for joining me on Telefriend. Thank you, thank you very much.